This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This episode of the Science Podcast is brought to you in part by Bayer. Bayer develops treatments for bleeding disorders like hemophilia so people can keep doing what's in their blood. From advances in health to innovations in agriculture, Bayer is advancing science for a better life. At Bayer, this is why we science. This episode of the Science Podcast is supported by McDonald's. McDonald's new investment initiative is helping to add new renewable energy. They're investing in new wind and solar projects that will help create so much renewable energy, it'll be like taking more than 140,000 cars off the road for one year or planting more than 11 million trees. It's just one more way McDonald's is using their scale for good. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 22nd, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. On this week's show, science writer Catherine Corni joins us to talk about a landslide observatory being built in a national park in Taiwan, one of the landslidiest places in the world. And I talk with Manveer Singh about the universality of music. Do all societies make music? And what do our songs have in common? And yes, we'll listen to a lot of songs in that segment. Now we have Catherine Corni, a freelance science writer based in Portland, Oregon. She went to Taiwan to visit a landslide observatory, or at least one that's in the process of being built. Hi, Catherine. Hi. Why Taiwan? What makes this a good place to study landslides? Well, Taiwan is a very extreme environment. There's a lot of earthquakes there. There's a lot of torrential rainfall, and there's a lot of erosion. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of stuff going on that tends to promote sliding. How common are landslides in Taiwan? Extremely common. So I was in a national park there and any direction you looked in, you could see about 12 or more scars from landslides. Did you say in your story that it was the most landslidiest place in the world? <laughs> it's definitely very high up there, if not number one. It is, it's an extreme place. You can see all these landslide scars from like anywhere in the park. Can you describe what that place was like? How hilly was it if there were landslides everywhere? It's an incredible landscape. So it really looks like something out of Avatar is the way I would describe it. <laughs> Precipitously steep mountains, very, very deep gorges that have been carved by flowing water. It's incredibly steep. You know, we tried to hike some of it and it was a challenge. And also everything is covered in very, very lush vegetation. 
So you have, you know, beautiful rivers at the base and then just hill slopes that are just bright, bright green, except in many areas, you see these landslide scars. So you see this bedrock kind of brown that really stands out against the vegetation. Are those landslides something that visitors to the park have to worry about? Absolutely. So rock falls and landslides are very common in this park. And there are many precautions that the park has taken to try to protect visitors. So for instance, a lot of sections of the road are built with kind of this concrete overhang. So Uh when you're driving down a road, if something was to tumble off a hillside, it wouldn't hit you directly on the road. It would hopefully be stopped. Another aspect is that the park gives out safety helmets. Uh-huh. This is the first national park I've been in where that was where I found that to be true. Yeah. And visitors are strongly encouraged to wear safety helmets as they walk around the park. I keep picturing, you know, a dome and a telescope, <laughs> which is not, not what a landslide observatory would probably look like. Yes. So what this is, there's going to be a whole bunch of different instruments spread out across this national park. And how big is the observatory? The observatory is going to cover several hundred square kilometers. So there's going to be over 100 instruments that are in many disparate locations, but they'll all be working together to try to understand these various processes going on in the park. Half of them are in place already. And within about the next year and a half, the remaining half will be installed. Mm -hmm. And basically, these instruments will look at many different aspects of this this landscape. They'll study how sediment and rock and soil is moved around. They'll monitor earthquakes. And they'll also look at landslides in terms of how common they are and what are their after effects. How do they affect the landscape? So normally, the way we hear about landslides is there's a picture of one from a satellite or a driver has some trouble on the road and can't can't keep going and they just call it in or something. <laughs> Indeed. This observatory is going to be a little bit more sophisticated. So first off, it'll have seismometers. So it'll actually measure the ground shaking that's caused by a landslide as rocks go tumbling and soil goes tumbling. It'll also have a lot of cameras. So the cameras will be looking at the hill slopes and by snapping pictures very frequently, they'll be able to see almost in real time when a landslide occurs. The big question about landslides seems to be their role in the global carbon budget and in climate change. And this was a real surprise to me. You know, how might landslides contribute to, you know, an increase in the release of carbon into the atmosphere? So that's a big question these researchers are after. So the idea here is something called chemical weathering. And that's when rocks are broken down over time to make what we think of as soil and release nutrients that are important to life, like Mm -hmm. sodium, phosphorus. And it's this weathering process that landslides play a big role in. For starters, they jumble up rocks, they pulverize things, and that creates a lot of little tiny rocks that have a lot of surface area, meaning that chemical reactions can proceed faster Mm -hmm. if you have more surface area. So landslides as basically pulverizers of rock is one way that they're really driving these, this chemical weathering that's going on. That leads to the question, is chemical weathering, is that a carbon source or a carbon sink? Right. So chemical weathering can actually be both. Right. And this is something that's a relative surprise. It's been known for a long time that chemical weathering is a carbon sink. So something that draws down carbon, sequesters it. And how does it do that? Oh, let's see. Let me walk you through it. Okay. The basic idea is that, of course, there's carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. 
and that combines with water. And that creates an acid known as carbonic acid, which is actually the same stuff inside of soda. And when this weak acid falls as rain, and it falls over silicate rocks, which are things like quartz or mica, it actually dissolves them. So it releases ions from those rocks. And then those ions flow down rivers and eventually make it out into the ocean, where they can combine with other minerals to actually create what's called calcium carbonate which is then taken up by marine organisms in their shells and their skeletons. And when these sea creatures die, they sink down to the, the ocean floor and they're incorporated into layers of limestone, which is acting as a carbon sink. So that's a really complicated There's way. There's a lot going on there. Of getting carbon out of the air and into the bottom of the ocean. Exactly. And, so. and it takes a long time. We're talking millions of years here. And what about how can chemical weathering act as a carbon source, kind of the opposite result? To do that, you need a different set of rocks and a different set of acids. Mm -hmm. So you're using uh, rocks that are carbonate rocks. So these are things like limestone or marble, and you're using a different acid called sulfuric acid. And with those chemical reactions, you actually get a net outflow of carbon. Mm -hmm. So you're actually putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. When we bring a landslide into the equation, does it push these forward or does it oppose these carbon sources and carbon sink processes? So actually, it can go both ways. Oh, no. Depending on what kind of rocks you have available and what kind of acids you have available. So it's very much, it's a balance. Yeah. And it's really hard to look at a landscape and say for certain, it's not that there's 100% of one type of chemical weathering and 0% of the other. Right. It's a balance. And that can actually change over time mm -hmm. and in different places within a landscape. Yeah. So it's very complicated. One of the questions that this observatory might be able to help answer is the idea of the land healing after a landslide. You mentioned landslide scars. What does it mean for a landscape to heal? So the idea here is that after an earthquake, the hill slopes are weakened. Rocks are kind of moved around. And then when you get a lot of rain falling, that's all the ingredients you need for a landslide. So landslides happen a lot after earthquakes and heavy rainfall. But what scientists have found is that over the course of several years, that rate of landsliding diminishes. So over time, it kind of goes back to background levels. You don't have any more landslides than you did before the earthquake. So scientists want to understand how do landscapes heal? Basically, how do they knit themselves back together? And some ideas are that you might have fissures in the rock that were caused by an earthquake, and those get filled in over time with maybe little rocks or soil, basically stabilizing the landscape. Another idea is that as plants regrow, that their roots kind of hold things together, mm -hmm. you know, providing an underground structure. And that might also help, help a landscape remain intact. What instruments at the observatory might help differentiate between these different theories for healing? There are many, many instruments that will still be installed. For instance, there might be laser scanning to look at the precise topography of a landscape. So maybe by studying how it's shifted slightly after an earthquake, that could tell you something about the healing. The researchers really emphasized to me that this observatory is a living thing, mm -hmm. that they will be continually adding instruments as they come up with new science questions. Yeah, that brings up this timescale that this observatory is going to be in operation for. I think you said it was a decade. How is that time span determined? 
really the, the goal here is to monitor how a landscape changes. And of course, you need a certain amount of time to do that. For instance, you need enough time for there to be enough landslides and enough time for there to be rain mm -hmm. and potentially even earthquakes. So by leaving the instruments in place for a decade, the researchers can really capture all the different processes that are occurring within this one landscape. And will it coincide with what we talked about earlier, where an earthquake happens and then landslide rates go up and then calm down over time? Exactly. So the researchers are, are hoping in some way that they will measure some earthquakes, that they will be able to trace how the landsliding rate goes up and then how it also decreases in the coming years. There was mention of video cameras watching logs float down river. What would that observation be able to help them calculate or model? So another way that carbon can be sequestered is if you take organic material from plants, so things like tree trunks or leaves, and you rapidly transport them down rivers and into the ocean, and then they can become buried on the seafloor. Mm -hmm. And the carbon within those plant tissues is sequestered. So by actually monitoring how many logs and such are going down rivers, right. scientists can try to get a handle on how much carbon might be flowing out of the system and eventually sequestered. Really interesting. We started by talking about how Taiwan is this really good place to study landslides because it has these, these features like lots of rain and slopes and, and whatnot, lots of landslides. How representative is it of the rest of the globe? It's extreme in the sense that there's a lot more going on here. For instance, if you were to take a landscape in most parts of the U.S., much fewer landslides, many fewer earthquakes. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's harder to set up an observatory in a place where everything happens over longer timescales. Of course, if you are a PhD student or a scientist, you want things to happen relatively quickly so then you can publish more papers and <laughs> learn more research. At the global level, is there an estimate of how many landslides there are, say, per year? I've read a couple studies that after big typhoon events, so very intense rainfalls, that there can actually be tens of thousands of landslides that are triggered, which is really incredible to think about. And of course, these typhoons, these intense ones don't happen every year. But just think about tens of thousands of landslides after one of these storms. Going back to the global carbon cycle part of this, if this is obviously immensely complex to monitor. But do you have a sense of how much landslides contribute to a model like that? I mean, is it a infinitesimally small contribution to this kind of calculation or do you think it's pretty substantial? I think it's pretty substantial. Taiwan, of course, is a very, it's a relatively small surface area of the globe. But because this is a place that is rocked so often by landslides, yeah. that these probably have a pretty sizable contribution. And that's something that this observatory really wants to try to answer. Where I grew up, there were a lot of roads that were blasted through mountains. Yes. And that seemed to be where landslides happen the most. Is that something that's pretty common where, you know, human-made structures promote landslides? So that is certainly another driver of, of landslides, things like mining. Any place that you're, you're weakening a hill slope is basically priming it to let loose. So human activity very much can, can have an effect on landslides. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you. Catherine Coronai is a freelance science writer based in Portland, Oregon. You can find a link to her article at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Stay tuned for an interview with Manveer Singh about the universality of music.
This week's episode is also brought to you in part by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates hands-on projects for kids of all ages to make learning about STEAM fun. This holiday season, a KiwiCo subscription makes the perfect gift for every young explorer, engineer, and artist in your life. KiwiCo is defining the future of play by making it engaging, enriching, and seriously fun. They create hands-on projects and toys designed to expose kids to concepts in STEM, art, and design. Their mission? To help kids build creative confidence and problem-solving skills and have a blast while they're doing it. There are seven lines to choose from, catering to different age groups and topics, like the Panda Crate for babies or the Eureka Crate for kids 14+. plus. Each box comes with all the supplies needed for that month's project, plus detailed kid-friendly instructions. KiwiCo projects are available via flexible monthly subscriptions or for individual purchase. They have gifts for kids of all ages, so there's something for everyone on your list. KiwiCo is offering you the chance to get your first month for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects, visit kiwico.com slash sciencemag. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash sciencemag. Is music a universal thing? Does every society have it? And if so, how similar is our music from one place to the next? Manveer Singh and colleagues tried to answer these questions at a paper published this week in Science. Hi, Manveer. Hi, Sarah. This paper is so rich. There's so much happening. But let's start with music right away. We get people, you know, tuned into what we're going to be talking about. Here are three lullabies from very different parts of the world. The first one here is from the Nagatome people of Eastern Africa. This next lullaby is from Highland Scots. I really like the lullaby that uh, is included in the set that you sent. And this was described in the in the comments as this is a peculiar manner of voice reproduction production. The trills are sung in this high register falsetto with a rolling tongue. It's from the, I don't know how to say The Ainu? That's the Ainu Yeah, the Ainu, yeah. These all come from a database that your team assembled. Where did you get recordings like these? We used Harvard's Archive of World Music. We used other libraries of traditional music and original field recordings across the country. And that got us a lot of what we were looking for. But in the end, it was pretty hard to find a couple of recordings. So for example, it was pretty tricky to find a love song from New Guinea or a lullaby from East Africa. And that's not because they don't exist, but that's just because there are actually not as many original field recordings from around the world as as we would expect. So in the end, we had to email anthropologists and ethnomusicologists directly and ask them to search through their own collections to see if they had any things that we can use. And that's ultimately how we filled out the database. It sounds like you had targeted 
certain places or certain types of coverage that you wanted to get. How did you decide what to include? We used an anthropological scheme that splits the world into 30 cultural regions, things like Australia, Melanesia, Southern South America, the Pacific Northwest. It's a way to try to representatively sample human diversity. So it's a way to properly cover in as principled a way as we could the vast diversity of human song. From each of those regions, we collected a dance song, a healing song, a love song, and a lullaby. In order to do this analysis, you had to have more than just the songs. You had to describe the songs. You had to have, you know, where they came from and what the song was and the components of the music. How did those values get assigned? For the vast majority of them, there was some useful behavioral metadata. These are the liner notes or the descriptions that the field workers had recorded. But then we also represented each song in four ways to turn it into data. So we essentially first transcribed it in Western notation. Then we extracted information about it automatically using music information retrieval software. Then we had 30 experts code it for all kinds of variables. And then we played it for listeners on the internet and had them rate their impressions of it. How fast is it? How happy does it sound, et cetera. And that allowed us to get this very rich annotation for the data. You know, there's no accepted way of representing music. And each of these methods has its own limitation. But our strategy was to use four different representations to try to compensate for any weaknesses the other ones might have and to try to get as comprehensive and rich a representation of the music as possible. How many songs did you do this for? Like I said, we had 30 world regions and from each region we collected four field recordings. So that comes out to 120. Ultimately, we got 118. We could not get a healing song from Scandinavia and a healing song from the British Isles. Let's go to another song. This is a dance song that is from a place that you've actually done uh, research yourself. Can you talk a little bit about this song here? So I do fieldwork in Mentawe, among the Mentawe people off the west coast of Sumatra. And the song that we just listened to is called Turulagai Uliat Bilo. So it is a traditional dance song in the form of the gibbon. And so in this song, shamans act out as gibbons and then they face off against each other while someone else drums on, on a snakeskin drum. And so an interesting thing about this song is that the rhythm, as you can tell, is very much like a dance song. You know, it's exciting, it's, it's like vigorous, but their vocals are much more melodic and less stereotypically rhythmically dominated, less stereotypically dancey in that way. Although, as you can tell from the drums, the drums are really what define it as a dance song. And I think even when we listen to it, our experience is very much guided by those drums. Do you have a favorite? Is the favorite your favorite, the Gibbon one, or is there a different favorite one that you have? Oh, I have so many favorites. Um, <laughs> I really like the the Maasai song. I really love the Chuk dance song. I like the song from the Nangatom. You really do have a lot. I love the Rwandan love song. The Rwandan love song is also so pretty. Yeah. All right, let's play one of your favorites now. This is the dance song you mentioned. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
I think this brings us to a really interesting feature of the paper, and that's there are dance songs in your collection, there are lullabies, there are love songs, and there are healing songs. Why are we using these categories to talk about songs? There have been a couple previous studies that have tried to look at patterns in, in music around the world. And one of the biggest limitations, in our opinion, is that they didn't look at songs by their, their specific behavioral domain, or, or they didn't focus on that when analyzing it. So for example, they might compare healing songs in Australia to lullabies in Europe, but we have reason to believe that healing songs and lullabies might be different, not only because they're from different parts of the world, but also because they have very different behavioral contexts. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to look at some particular behavioral domains, and we chose those four, for one, because they are just widespread. And the second is that they coincide with some existing evolutionary theories of why music is the way it is. So there are some biological and cultural evolutionary theories for why music takes its particular form. And these four domains were relevant to those theories. So can you talk about those theories that you mentioned about the evolution of songs? Yeah. So most of the existing theories can broadly be divided into one of two categories. They're either adaptationist hypotheses about music or their byproduct hypotheses. So adaptationist hypotheses says that humans have evolved to produce and respond to music. We have special neurological adaptations that arose so that we can make and and engage with music. An example of one of those hypotheses is by my co-author, Sam Mayer, who hypothesizes that music ultimately might have its origins in the interaction between mothers and their infants. And so he particularly, along with another one of our co-authors, Max Krasnow, has hypothesized that lullabies are these honest indications of attention, that, you know, the baby wants some sign of attention. And the lullaby is essentially this very reliable signal that the parent is attending. And so on the basis of this hypothesis, you would predict that lullabies would be ubiquitous and they have certain kinds of features. And what about these byproduct hypotheses? The, the best known formulation of the byproduct hypothesis is by Steven Pinker, who says that music is auditory cheesecake. Huh. And so the idea there is that humans have evolved all kinds of cognitive adaptations for non-musical ends. So for example, figuring out where certain sounds are coming from or responding well to sounds that are reliable indicators of nice environments. So for example, the sound of water or birdsong, we might be predisposed to find those especially appealing. And then what music is essentially doing is it's like hacking our brain, representing this highly appealing package of sensory delight. Music is a drug. Music is a drug, exactly. In that vein, some of my own research has been about shamanism. And a striking thing about shamanism is that around the world, shamanic practices are associated with song. You know what? I think you should tell us what a, a shaman is. Shamans are specialists who enter trance to provide services, typically healing and divination. They include mediums, witch doctors, but even ecstatic prophets. They seem to appear ubiquitously. So the vast majority of hunter-gatherers had shamans. And you even find when like large-scale religions try to destroy shamanism, it seems to pop up again. The striking thing is that around the world, shamanic healing practices, so those in which this practitioner enters this trance state and heals a patient, are often entangled with music. Hmm. In some of my previous work in writing about shamanism, I've hypothesized that these shamanic healing songs 
are really just like highly compelling devices for creating an environment that convinces the client that they're being healed and that this is a compelling, credibly otherworldly experience. So the idea there is not that we've evolved to produce and engage with healing songs, but instead healing songs take on these properties to convince the client that this is this compelling otherworldly experience. It's a different kind of mind drug, essentially. Right. So it's another path to the brain. Is there an example from the corpus from the database that is a healing song by a shaman? Yeah, yeah. There are quite a few, actually. Let's let's play a, a shaman's healing song here. It's from the Otavalo Quichua of the Central Andes in South America. Let's start digging into these findings. We talked about the discography database, and then there's also ethnographies to go with those societies that are in your, your set. But first, there's a much bigger ethnography database that you use to answer the question, does everyone have music? First, we looked at the ethnographies for 315 societies. So essentially, there's this online database of ethnographic information. So our first question was, does every society in this database for which there's ethnographic documentation, do they have music? And we found that they did. Let's talk about some of the trends that you found using these different databases. There are quite a few. One of them is that we aggregated 20 hypotheses about which behaviors music should be associated with. And so we looked through the literature, you know, hypotheses that other people have proposed. We surveyed ethnomusicologists and music theorists. And then we drew upon some of our own work. And we found these 20 hypotheses about the context in which music should appear. And so those included dance, healing, love, and lullaby, but also mourning and warfare and child's play. Then using this huge ethnographic database tested around the world is music associated with these particular behavioral contexts. And we found strong evidence for 14 out of 20 of them, but we found pretty good evidence for all of them. I think that's like a pretty cool finding. It's that music suffuses social life and it appears in a huge diversity of contexts from like wedding processions to mourning to warfare, but it does so consistently across societies. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was really cool that, you know, Music is this very particular and peculiar behavior that humans exhibit. And yet we feel compelled wherever we are to combine it with this huge diversity of behaviors. Well, what about the specific types of songs? We talked about lullabies. Are there some features of them that seem to persist from society to society? Lullabies exhibit a couple of interesting features. I think all of them are pretty unsurprising. So one of them is that compared to dance songs, lullabies are much slower. Two of the, the main things that distinguish lullabies from other songs, one kind of unsurprisingly is that they're slower. And the second is that they have fewer accents, like less differentiation of volume or emphasis over the course of a lullaby. That's lullabies. What about love songs? One thing I was wondering about with love songs in particular was, you know, how important are lyrics when you're doing this kind of analysis? I have here a love song recorded in Rwanda in 1952. I'm going to play that. And here are the lyrics. 
Why do I love you when you do not respond? I have written you letters and you do not answer. I have sent you messengers and you turn them away. I bow to you when we meet and you hide your face. You do not notice me. How can you talk about love songs without talking about the words? Okay, so that's a great question. In a previous study, we found that when people hear love songs, they're actually not very good at knowing that they're love songs. They actually don't do better than chance. But what they can do is that they answer better than chance that there's a story being told there. One potential interpretation of this is that the thing that makes a love song a love song, as you're suggesting, is much more its lyrical content than necessarily its acoustical or musical features. In this study, we were actually able to find that there are some things that define love songs as compared to other songs. We did not analyze lyrics, but we have a huge corpus of lyrics and we're planning some analyses. But yeah, I think I think that's an important point that there may be some musical domains in which the features that define them or characterize them are less their musical or acoustical features and more their lyrical content. Stepping back from, you know, these individual types of songs, did you find as a whole that there was a lot of similarity? You know, this is a quantitative study. Did you see that as a whole, there were very strong commonalities in these different types of songs? Yeah. So I think it depends on your priors. Like if you look at the title of our paper, it's universality and diversity. (laughs) Yeah, you got a little bit of both in there. Yeah. So because one interpretation is that when we use automated techniques, machine learning on these different ways of representing songs, we can consistently predict what a song is on the basis of its features. So it suggests that there are these features that consistently characterize these songs around the world. But at the same time, the accuracy is not 100%. In fact, it's like quite a bit far from it. So it really depends on like how you're, how you're coming to this. As a part of this larger project, The Natural History of Song, we've surveyed cognitive scientists and music theorists and ethnomusicologists. And we've actually found that people's priors about cross-cultural similarities actually vary quite a bit. So ethnomusicologists are much more skeptical of there being, you know, for example, associations between the musical form and the behavioral function, whereas cognitive scientists are much more apt to expect it. We definitely did find interesting cross-cultural similarities that suggest that, you know, there are things about human psychology that lead us to think that certain sounds go with certain behaviors. But at the same time, there is quite a bit of space for culture and the individual cultural context to shape the form of music. There's no way you'd be able to say, uh, you know, 100% of lullabies have this. It's much more like there's these common threads in lullabies, but there's so much diversity from culture to culture that that's always going to be there too. I think we could say you can almost always expect that lullabies will be slower than dance songs and that lullabies will be will have fewer accents than dance songs. Mm-hmm. And the difference between lullabies and dance songs is the especially striking one. In the vast, vast, vast majority of cases, lullabies will be slower than dance songs. Although like, you know, I remember we've published this and someone was like, I play metal music for my child. And it's like, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, Just a one-off. Yeah, maybe not even a one-off. You know, there are probably all kinds of ways to soothe an infant. Were you surprised by these findings? I was admittedly surprised by that finding we talked about earlier, where across societies, music is consistently associated with all of these different behavioral domains. And I thought it was cool that lullabies and dance songs are especially stereotyped. It seems to suggest that there's something special about lullaby and dance, potentially. I can see this database or these databases being used in so many different ways. What are your hopes for future research? 
Some of the things that I am excited about other people potentially working on are one, what we talked about briefly earlier, the, the lyrics. You know, we have this huge, beautiful data set. Mm-hmm. And so it allows us to explore, like, what are the kinds of things that people are, are trying to communicate with song insofar as song is maybe a means of preserving cultural heritage or trying to influence other people, other people's emotional state or augment a social context or, or social environment. Another thing that I think is cool and which we've started to look at is how does musical behavior transform or change throughout an individual's life course? Yeah. And how does that compare across societies? So the experience of music for infants and children and adolescents and middle-aged people and elderly people or from men to women to whomever is very, very different. So I'm excited to look at these kinds of domains of difference. All right. Thank you so much, Manveer. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Manveer Singh is a PhD candidate in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. You can find a link to his article at sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll also find links to these databases where you can explore some of the songs and some of the findings. We're going to play my favorite lullaby here at the end of the episode, so make sure you check that out. Just a reminder that this week's episode was brought to you in part by Bayer. Bayer is developing new cardiovascular treatments, advanced brain disease research, and ways to age gracefully. From advances in health to innovations in agriculture, Bayer is advancing science for a better life. At Bayer, this is why we science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. Or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, many other places. The show is produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Special thanks to Megan Cantwell and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.